0: Uh, good morning everybody um so I, uh, I i'm hoping that i will persuade you uh by this presentation and training that uh that um kelly has saved the best f- for the la- for the last uh, at least the last week um, because um uh, this the idea of using a federal law to make a, a lot that would that's a fairly easy legal um, uh, uh, legal procedure, uh, and but new to to us generally because we don't often practice in federal court, um, and can result in very uh, uh, very in fun and large. Uh, money judgments for both our clients and funding for our programs actually uh, is, um, is something that we don't often get a chance to do. And, and uh, but, but generally when we do, when legal services lawyers do this type of work, uh, it's it's um, it's a successful income. Uh, it's a successful outcome and income for our tenants and for our programs too. And so this is this is also something that you can let your directors know. Uh, yeah, we will we'll, could very ha- much help your programs in terms of their funding. Um, but that's not the reason that, that uh, I'm. Um, I'm a crusader for uh, trying to expand, for urging people to expand your housing law practice to consider these types of lawsuits. It really is uh, an important, um, uh, an important um, opportunity to correct uh, really grievous uh, uh, Ill- illegalities that hurt our clients, and that's really the important part of it for us and for our clients so um, i i think kelly said but please um, um so long as i can as, uh, quickly answer a question um if you interrupt by with the chat and then then kelly will let me know that you have a have a um question and i'll try to answer it quickly um as we go along um because we'll, otherwise we'll never get to that um, And the one other thing is I wanted to mention is that um, as I was preparing for this program today, which um, I've updated it over the, I had done it um, about five years ago, but I was doing updating on cases that you'll find out see at the end, but I um, uh, uh, realized that in the five years that since I had presented this, there had been a lot of cases involving section eight and the False Claims Act and many of those cases were uh, filed by the legal services program in Nevada. Um, and I noticed that one of our current attorneys, uh, Chris Bergstrom um, uh, is counsel of record for, for those cases because she was the uh, litigation or she was a director there at the program in Nevada before she came to Pittsburgh. So she's on this call and uh, she, uh, she indicated that um, she would be more than willing to uh, jump in uh, and answer any questions as well, or offer her sage advice and wisdom as I speak. So, Chris, thank you, and please interrupt. And Kelly, we'll see you interrupting, and then um, and then it would be great if you could add your own experiences and um, anything I'm doing, saying wrong or, or not enough of. Okay. So we'll begin. So the the purpose of of uh, the the false the federal false claims act is, is to essentially encourage citizens to be tattletales tales. Uh, when um, uh, when this law was enacted, and it, you know, the next slide will show is a long time ago. Um, the government realized that the government cannot be uh, a police officer uh, for all of the people and companies and programs that it funds. And so this law really encourages, but it wants to make sure that the funding that the government provides for whatever purposes uh, that the money is being spent in the way that it should be spent and not being um, exploited by the recipients of those funds. And so uh, um, and so, this law provides a procedure that encourages uh, people who see that the funds are being misused to tattle on those people in a way that uh, will protect the, the fisc the government fisc, and uh, severely penalize uh, uh, entities and people who who um, who misuse those funds, and so that's what uh, uh, Legal Services has learned to um, take advantage of in Section Eight side payment cases and other types similar cases too. So uh, here's one quote from a Fifth Circuit case from a, uh, several years ago, to aid the re- rooting out of fraud and serve as a posse of ad hoc deputies to uncover and prosecute frauds against the government. Um, the, the law was enacted in 1863. Um, uh, uh, and. It was proposed by President Lincoln and the government uh, and this Congress passed it then and it's been in effect for a very very long time with some um, a few amendments which have been' mentioned as we as we go along since then but not a lot uh, of amendments it's um, the law um I mean I, I think that people probably have heard about how uh Medicare, uh, Medicare has the use of Medicare funds has been um, the subject of many f- uh, Fair False Claims Act cases for unscrupulous uh, medical providers who make claims against uh, to the government for um, fraudulent uh, medical services that are claimed to have been provided, uh, and uh, and uh, the law has expanded to cover far beyond that. And a couple of years ago in Allegheny County, there was a, a very, very large uh, lawsuit filed against, um, oh, I can't remember the name, but it was a, a, a company that um, offered loans to, a private company that offered private school loans to uh, students. Um, and um, the, uh, the company was charged with fraudulently, uh, and then because there was an incentive by, by the government, as, as you know, in these private schools to give, give loans out to students. And it was clear that they were getting these government subsidized loans and giving them to students without, when they knew that these students would have no way of successfully completing the program anyway. So I think the, um, the, there was ultimately a settlement that was for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and, um, this is essentially why that, oops, sorry, that, um, these federal grants and contract programs would be impossible to, uh, operate if there, if there wasn't a way to be able to enforce them with this false claims act. So what happens is that, um, oh, shoot. what happens is that the, uh, um, um any any agency or entity or person that receives a federal grant or contract has to certify must certify as a condition of obtaining those funds that the funds will be used legally and within and and properly and once there's a certification then uh it's a violation of that certification if they're fraudulent or misused in any way and that's where the uh, false claims act comes in to be able to say you you certified that you were going to use these funds properly and then um, if, if, if there's somebody who can establish that they these entities these recipients actually were using the funds improperly then the certification itself establishes that they a fraud because they're violating what they explicitly knew um, they were not permitted to do and they promised the government otherwise. Um, so the, this is the statute, um, the federal false claims statute and the, the essential language of what, of what the statute does is, is this, any person who knowingly presents or causes to be presented a false or fraudulent claim, for payment or approval to the government, knowingly makes, uses or causes to be made or used a false record or statement material to a false or fraudulent claim. And that's where the certification comes in a false because you have to make a false record or statement. This isn't for actually, this law does not require that somebody actually prove that money was stolen from the government, but rather that they make a false statement in order to obtain those benefits from the government is liable for a civil penalty plus three times the amount of damages uh, sustained as a result of that. Um, But the good part, a great, a good part of the statute is the following, that it's not just the government that can bring an action. Uh, The law specifically for the reasons we talked about the law specifically allows private entities, private persons, in fact, it says person, but since the Supreme Court, I guess, has said that a company can be a person too. But in any event, it allows us on behalf of our tenants, our clients, to bring a civil action for a violation of that section itself. Um, so, and the action shall be brought in the name of the government. A, p- a person who chooses to bring that kind of an action is called the relator, R-E-L-A-T-O-R, and uh, and uh, as you'll see, all of these lawsuits are always captioned as United States uh, X-REL, which has something to do with relator XREL, and then the name of your the plaintiff um, and we'll be talking about how this happens, what what the procedures are, but that's what, um, but this law allows you to do that. And then that therefore means that you, on behalf of your tenant and uh, and your client can then obtain, as you'll see, a a significant uh, portion of damages if those damages, if liability is found. Um, So the better reason is this, uh, is this opportunity. So once once a lawsuit is filed, a, a false claims lawsuit is filed, the law requires that, and we'll talk about this, how it's to be filed, that if there are damages and if the government takes over the case, which it has the right to do, then the tattletale is, even if the government takes the whole case over and, and your client does nothing, And and you as a lawyer do nothing more other than to have filed this lawsuit to begin with. If the government takes it over, then your client will receive um, a portion of the proceeds uh, uh, of uh, of the litigation, the portion of the penalties and a portion of the damages. And if the government chooses not to proceed and you as a lawyer on behalf of your tenant choose to proceed with the case on behalf of the government, then you get an even greater portion of whatever uh, damages and penalties result. And Chris, Chris is up there. I see Chris, so that's great. And uh, 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 so if you do too, then if you raise your hand or something, if you wanna butt in and I'll, I can see that too. So thank okay. you. Um, <clears throat> um so this is makes this opportunity even more enticing to me at least and i hope to all of you any person that's found liable under this law must and this is not discretionary it must be assessed a civil penalty of not less than $5000 and not more than 10000 as adjusted by this inflation adjustment act plus three times the amount of actual damages, plus uh, if the, if you, plus whatever lawyers uh, attorney's fees um, have been sustained plus costs and expenses. There's, although there is um, some discretion in that that judges take advantage of, we could talk about that later. The fact is, is that this particular statute is mandatory that if there is a liability, then uh, then these penalties must be imposed against the defendant. Uh, that's a lot of money. And we'll just talk about why it is particularly with section eight, yeah.
1: I just wanna say, um, when we started doing these in Nevada, we started filing around 2015, 2016. And by the time I left in, in twenty nineteen, we had gotten um, judgments or settlements totaling over $500,000. We did either because we settled and got some money, or the the court awarded us a judgment. So it's Eileen's not joking when she says there's some money there.
0: Um, Yeah, it's it's incredible. Uh, I well, we'll talk. Yeah, that's. um, But that's even better news, which happened since I last had a case in court. Which uh, there was an amendment to this particular law that allows for the government agencies to uh, increase those statutes in every single federal law, which allows for statutory penalties. It mandates actually that the heads of the agency shall adjust those monetary penalties um, for inflation. So that the five to $10,000, which I had to, uh, which my, Clients were limited to when I was representing when I had my two cases that I did. Um, they're far greater now. The amounts of money, those amounts of those statutory penalties. And if you can see here, uh, the range now for these stat mandatory statutory penalties. The minimum penalty now is eleven thousand six hundred and sixty-five dollars per violation. And the maximum penalty is twenty three thousand three hundred and thirty one dollars per violation. That's now that started a couple months ago. So uh, it's it's like unbelievably lucrative uh, for um, for those tattletale uh, those tattletale um, relators, including if if you have the opportunity to to litigate, it's for your your tenants, um, assuming that, of course, that the uh, defendant has the funds to pay those judgments. Um, so th- the two, this this is just to indicate that there were two major uh, major amendments to the uh, Federal C- False Claims Act over the years. But there's not not, but but Congress still has uh, has. Uh, ensured that these uh, that this law is is um, is uh, incur- encourages people to do the tattle telling and the most recent law uh, in 20, 2009 as it indicates that that came about to expand the scope of the law and to make it easier for uh, relayers to uh, uh, t- tell uh, actually the law actually expands the rights of whistleblowers to protections if they do tattle on the agency. Um, but it was done really because of the uh, the mortgage crisis that happened uh, in 2008 and you know, remained with us for several years and still does, but um, and does now for different ways, of course. But in any event. Um, these two laws, uh, I mean, these amendments were really to expand and make it easier for liti- for litigation by by relators, which is kind of shocking that it's that there was a law that makes it easier for private citizens to possibly earn a lot of money. But of course, the, the benefit for the government is that the government is not wasting a lot of money if, if in fact, they can stop that uh, waste. So this is the um, this is what uh, the plaintiffs who have to prove about the entity that is being sued, uh, that that the uh, defendant has knowingly presents or causes to be presented a false or fraudulent came claim for approval of a payment or for actual payment. So it doesn't even have to be that the defendant was actually paid wrongfully, but just that they presented a statement certifying that they should be paid a certain amount of money and they want that approved. Um, Or that they knowingly make use or cause to be made or used a false record or statement that's material to obtaining that uh, improperly requested uh, payment. Um, And, Again, the, the knowing and, and knowing glee was expanded in 2009 to make it a broader um, application that either the, the defendant has actual knowledge of the information or acts in a deliberate ig- ignorance of the truth or falsity of the information. So it doesn't, so the sander, um doesn't have to be uh, actual knowledge That they, but that the defendant would act in deliberate ignorance of the truth or falsity, or acts in reckless disregard of the truth or falsity of the information, and specifically, um, the law now provides. This is one of the newer, um, the newer uh, amendments. It does specifically the law does not require proof of a specific intent. Chris, did you want to answer?
1: And I was going to say when we did these cases, this was always the landlord's main defense. Um, they almost never denied um, taking the payments. They would just say they didn't know they weren't allowed to charge them, or they didn't know it was a program violation. Um, and of course, in, in almost every case, the judge said, "You know, no, you signed the contract. The terms were very clear. You can't claim you didn't know." Um, But I would say this is, um, if you're going to do these lawsuits, you you do want to make sure um, before you file, because the few cases we had where this was an issue, um, someone at the housing authority had told the landlord it was okay. Um, We we had a case that we had to to, um, settle for for $6,500 instead of the $65,000 we'd asked for, um, because one of the lower level caseworkers had told the landlord that they could charge pool fees. And she was wrong and they weren't allowed to at the housing authority itself when they sort of from the the main office said no that's not right you can't do that but that was enough um, to confuse the issue for the court to say that you know the the landlord didn't actually know because they've been getting this different different information so you do want to make sure that your um your housing authority hasn't given the landlord the opposite message um and similarly um you want to make sure with the housing authority that their um, cop their operating procedures say that they're going to terminate the landlord if they um, don't if they try and charge side payments because that was an issue in some of our cases too um, because our, our housing authority wouldn't terminate landlords for side payments Um, and so the the landlord said well it's not material because nothing would have happened to us and so our our argument was always well it should have because the operating procedures say this um, and there would have been consequences you know besides termination and you would have had to pay back some of that money there there would have been issues um, and we usually were able to to get by on that Um, so that's just something you want to look out for when you're sort of filing this and considering what to do Does your housing authority actually terminate people for this? Would they, and have they been giving out the wrong information to landlords? Because the caseworkers don't always know what a side payment is. I mean, they know, you know, a straight up extra rent, but if someone calls it HOA fees or pool fees, or, you know, um, whatever their, whatever name they're gonna come up with it, non-rent operating costs is another one that we saw. um, They may not know that that's a side payment. So it's just something you wanna check before you file.
0: Yeah, good points. We'll keep going. Uh, okay, so this so what when does a defendant make a, a claim that was uh, fraudulent in the eyes of your client, the relator, uh, in the context of section eight, but any any plaintiff and what is a claim? And and again, it's a more expanse. this also was a term that was expanded to make it easier to prove wrong wrongdoing means any request or demand, whether under a contract or otherwise for money or property, and whether or not the United States has title to that money or property, that is one presented to an officer, employer, agent of the United States, or has been made to a contractor or other recipient grantee. If the money is to be, I said, spent or used on the government's behalf, and if the and if the United States one provides or has provided any portion of the money requested or demanded to the uh, defendant or two has agreed to reimburse the contractor grantee and this is this was expanded also to include contractors in 2009 so it's not just government agencies or or specific grantees but if the grantee for instance, were to subcontract that also is a uh, money to that sub contractor is a, um, a claim that is covered by the act. Um, there is, so what are the procedures for instituting a lawsuit uh, by a private party um, and um, like like our clients? One, there are some cautions to be, uh, to have to observe. um under this law, if the illegal, alleged illegal conduct had previously been publicly disclosed by any other entity, then your client is not going to be able to succeed in the case. They're prevented from succeeding because, really, this is this law is really intended to be uh, used to advise and inform the government that something improper has happened, is happening, and not simply for your tenant to say, oh, I read about the fact that the, my landlord is doing something wrong, so now I am now I know it's wrong, and I'm now going to make a claim to the government because of that. This law is, cannot be used for that reason, it, because it, the, the goal is your client is a private attorney general, in a sense. They're taking on that role of... Um, of investigating and being aware that there is wrongdoing, de- and if your client has only learned of the wrongdoing do- because of um, it ha- the wrongdoing de- was publicly disclosed, then they're not they're not um, carrying out the purpose and intent of this law, um, and can't avail themselves of it. So publicly disclosed means in in any federal criminal, civil, or administrative hearing in which the government is a party. So that's that's a critical that could sometimes be a critical uh, factor which you might be able to for your client um, still be able to avail yourselves of this law if if the government, if if the if the proceeding in which this wrongdoing was exposed was not one in which the government or its agent was a party. Uh, if there was a, uh, some sort of investigation by um, a Congress or by the GAO or any other federal agency about the issue that you're, um, you're complaining about, or if it was publicized in the news. Um, there is a caveat to that, though, unless the action is brought by the attorney general and your client is the person bringing the action is an original source of the information. And original source means somebody who has voluntarily informed the government of, a, of wrongdoing uh, so that um, if your client was the person that um, uh, had um, um, spoken to the press and the press said, based upon what the client says, uh, then um, uh, look what's happening to section eight. Uh, then that, if you can prove that that was the first person that brought the that brought to the news media the the issue, then they can um, attempt at least to avail themselves of this law. Or if that if, if your client had independent material material knowledge, when material is the um, important word there, which adds to the public disclosures. And if that was previously voluntarily provided, so it can't be that your client was uh, under the gun because they were gonna be arrested otherwise, so they decided to tattle, that's not so voluntary. Uh, So as I indicated before, so this is how this works. Did you you raise your hand, Chris? I'm sorry, no, okay. So this is how it would work if you were to uh, use this law. And again, we'll talk about the types of side payments where we, I think, we've all possibly, I think we all have seen, or it's definitely prevalent uh, for Section 8 side payments. And, um, but a person files a lawsuit, you you file the lawsuit uh, and um, however, it has to be filed under seal and, and it will remain under seal for at least 60 days so this is a new way of filing the lawsuit. You're not allowed to to um, tell the defendant that you are filing the lawsuit. Unlike, you can't, don't give notice to the defendant. You file. You prepare a complaint. You file the complaint with the federal district court, and you and and you as the attorney also have to simultaneously um, submit to the United States attorney a a summary, a fairly specific summary of all the material evidence and information which you um, uh, have obtained. Actually, I guess my parentheses there says it says in advance of filing the lawsuit. I could do it simultaneously, though. Um, to, um, to in advance, you have to send the, gov- the government lawyers basically a summary of what information you have to prove your case that the defendant is doing wrong. Uh, Then, that then affords to the government its right to proceed because they do, they are the attorney general, right? So it gives them the right to proceed based upon your your client's tattletelling. Uh, It gives them the right to proceed against the defendant. But the, the government has three options one is to intervene and take over the case. And that's what every private lawyer loves, but it um, doesn't usually happen for Section 8 cases. And mostly, in fact, I've, I actually, there's one there's one case, it was very early on where, in Florida, uh, where the government did take over the case and, but uh, but mostly, the government will not take these cases because it doesn't involve the hundreds of millions of dollars that Medicare fraud, for instance, uh, involves. But um, but that's one option the government has. Or uh, another option, actually, is to determine that there is absolutely no merit in the case, and they'll and they'll ask that the court dismiss it. And um, fortunately, uh, in my experience, at least, and from what I've known and seen, uh, the government is, if there's a um, even some basis for uh, proceeding, uh, based upon the legal issues, the government will not take that drastic step and instead take the third option, which was to decline to take action on its own, but allow the private person to pursue the case. And that's what commonly happens in these Section 8 type cases.
1: I'm happy to you might, Need to be prepared to do some education with your AUSA. And when we started doing this in Nevada, we had to sort of explain what it was we were doing because he'd obviously never heard of a Section 8 tenant filing the False Claims Act. Yeah. um so then they'll be sort of more supportive if they know what's going on we were lucky RAUSA loved these cases because as far as he was concerned this was free money with no work
0: so i he figured that was
1: very supportive um and even helped us with settlement negotiations sometimes and um even in one case that i had where my, my client died halfway through and um, we dismissed the case and he refiled because there was some fairly substantial oh. landlord actually left a voicemail with his name admitting that he tried to side payments and saying it was okay because he uh was allowed to do that because the client had agreed to it. Um, what a great so gift. Helpful, uh, but so the AUSA was like, well, if I have an admission on tape that he did this illegally, I'm just going to file on my own. So um, getting the AUSA on your side, it's worth sort of taking some time to, to work with them and tell them kind of what you're doing, assuming they're interested.
0: It's terrific. Another another reason to think about a week from now. Yeah. Um, Statute of limitations is actually statutorily prescribed and it's pretty large. Six so you can sue for damages for six years after the date on which the violation occurred. Lots of people don't know that um, the facts to know that they're, you know, that the, the improprieties occurred. So it's three days, three years after the date where the material facts are known or should have been known by the official charged with the responsibility. But so that even uh, expands, if you can make this argument, expands to up to 10 years after the, um, after the violation occurred, whichever occurs last. Um, and so in my experience, I, Chris, maybe you can tell me otherwise, but in my experience, when I have filed the cases under seal, as, as a previous slide indicated it's just, there's you have to wait at least 60 days and the government is required to under the law to make its decision within 60 days but but no because um, the government will take takes its time and in fact both of my case the two cases I've litigated, the government would always file uh, motions to extend the time that we have to investigate. And it's been even more than a year before they make their decision.
1: We never had any that lasted that long. Um, um, and I think once um, once Troy, our AUSA, once he kind of got the gist of it, they tended to come back a lot quicker. Although I know by the time I left in 2018, he was telling us he had to send it back to the DC yeah. and, and get it from DOJ. He couldn't sort of authorize stuff on his own anymore. Um, so that might be causing a delay now, but, but normally, before that, he, he was pretty quick once he understood what we were doing, but the first couple of times, it definitely took more than 60 days.
0: Another reason to consider a week from now as well, or five yeah. number of days it is from now, because those DOJ, those AUSAs um, will be reappointed. Uh, yes, if it, I can't, I'm not going to emphasize, o- overly emphasize how important what Chris says is that a lot of what will happen in your case depends upon how sympathetic your uh, uh, assistant U.S. attorney is to your this case. Um, also, um, the the tattletale, the relator, has to be um, uh, the first person to file the case against the particular defendant, or they're not entitled to any recovery at all, um, and. Uh, so also in keeping with the spirit and the intent of the law and no public disclosure and the other, the final uh, caution is that the relator is not permitted to discuss the case with anybody at all, neither you nor your client, um, except you can to your colleagues, but, um, but um, uh, the, the court can dismiss the case if there has been public, if, if the if you' if the situation has been made public by the relator or to or you know, even by the relator's attorney if if it's become publicly known because obviously it would interfere with the government's investigation otherwise um, so now we'll get to uh, section 8 itself so where there as uh, so there has to be a uh, a comply of a violation of the compliance with the with a contract of that the landlord has entered into with the government in order for for the, that would result in either the promise to pay or the request for pay or the actual receipt of money from the government that would be improper there has to be some sort of a contract contractual uh, agreement um, between the landlord that and the, and the government agency that the gov- that you can show that the landlord is um, is violating and it, uh, in addition to that the um, I the uh, administrative plan under section 8 that is the uh, annual uh, 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 uh the annual publication by the housing authorities of what the, their uh, responsibilities and their administrative um, obligations are to running the housing the Section Eight program. Um, there are uh, there are definitely regulations that and 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 the HAP contract itself and, and and other and other documents that we'll get to on the next slide, which establish that commitment between the landlord and the housing authority. I'm sure you all are aware, uh, hopefully the uh, section nine, this particular regulation is quite explicit, right? The total of rent paid by the tenant plus the housing assistance payment cannot be more than the rent to the owner that the housing authority of course establishes. All of our tenants get those notices that say that the rent to owner is $800 a month the tenant's portion is hundred dollars a month and and the owner will be receiving seven hundred dollars a month from housing authority and that regulation also requires that if the owner gets any excess payment from any entity including the tenant they must re- the owner must return any excess to the housing authority that's explicit and this provides um valid reason to argue that the uh that there's been an improper and illegal side payment if the landlord receives more than that amount of money that uh, is prescribed by the housing authority. Similarly, uh, the owner may not demand or accept any rent payment at all from the tenant in excess of this maximum and must immediately return any excess payment to the tenant. Same thing. And uh, whenever we litigate whenever I litigate these issues, I um, always uh, ask, and if my tenant, my client hardly ever has, but we we have to look at the HAP contract itself, the housing assistance payment contract. Um, although part C is the addendum as, um, if, if you don't, if you don't, I'm presuming that, uh, you all understand you know, the mechanics and the, and the requirements of participation in the Section 8 program and, and are hopefully familiar with the tenancy addendum. Um, but perhaps I'll just quickly back up and, and summarize that when, when a tenant agrees, when a tenant is a participant in the Section 8 housing voucher program, housing choice voucher program, um, the tenant and the landlord enter into a lease, but as a prerequisite to receiving the the Section 8 subsidy, the landlord and the housing authority enter into a contract, the housing assistance payments contract, which prescribes and regulates uh, the the rules and responsibilities of the owner and of the housing authority for purposes of the the housing authority, then making paying the subsidy to the landlord for the rent that the tenant does not pay. So this housing assistance payment contract has three parts to it. And part C is the tenancy addendum, which is explicitly a third-party beneficiary uh, uh, part of the contract, which explicitly says that uh, tenants have the right to sue or defend for violations of any part of that tenancy addendum and that tenancy addendum must be incorporated into whatever private lease has been entered into between the landlord and the tenant. So Part C always is part of that lease. And explicitly in that HAP contract, Part C is the following. The owner may not charge or accept from the family or any other source any payment for rent of the unit in addition to the rent to owner, which is the rent obligation that the housing authority determines the tenant must pay um, rent to owner includes all housing services maintenance utilities and appliances to, to be provided and paid by the owner in accordance with the lease so this is this language is critical because then we're going to see how um, it's these side payments these illegal side payments could can be much more than just an extra amount of money um, over and above the the rent that
1: we pay. Eileen, I'm sorry, this is Kelly. If I could just interrupt, I'm gonna launch the first of the two CLE polls. So attorneys requesting credit for your participation, please respond now. You'll have a minute and a half to do so. Um, There'll be a second one coming up later. Thanks and Eileen, please feel free to continue.
0: Okay. And um, Kelly, I, if you made, did you make Chris a co-host? Uh, I did. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, we aren't able to do that. So if you could just remember to, um, to give Chris the credit also for being the co-host on this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've already noted it. <laughs> great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. I, I I like to get the perk as well as everybody else of our CLE. Um, so um, another... Another source of um, of legal uh, imprimatur on the, the contractual obligations uh, between landlord and housing authority is from the Housing Choice Voucher Program Guidebook, which is not a um, it's not a binding legal document, but it has been cited frequently in court cases as guidance that should be adhered to. And in that Housing Choice Voucher Program Guidebook, which actually I urge people to take a look at for any Section 8 case that comes up that you're dealing with, because it does provide for some additional information that might be useful in your defense of an eviction, for instance, or or in defense of a termination. In any event, in this guidebook, uh, HUD defines fraud and abuse as a single act or a pattern of actions made with the intent to to deceive or mislead, which constitutes a false statement, omission or concealment of a substantive fact. Fraud and abuse result in the payment of housing choice voucher program funds in violation of program requirements. Couldn't be clearer than that. That's when fraud and abuse occurs. Um, And uh, again, the uh, the payment of more than just what the contract, what the HAP contract provides and what the um, lease provides is, um, is a violation of program requirements. Um, and uh, again, in the, in the guidebook, it provides that an owner or landlord's collection of extra or side payments of money in excess of the tenant portion share of rent constitutes fraud and abuse explicitly and there's also a uh, hud issued a um, in the federal register a fraud alert which outlines generally to um this is an old it's an old fraud alert alert but it's never been it's still in effect that essentially explains to the housing authorities that um they should watch out for landlords which who uh who, who uh, are demanding money beyond that uh Meant to owner payment because that will constitute fraud as far as the housing authority and HUD is are concerned. Uh, so when you also, so when you plead your case um, then um, uh, that's what um, that's what the um, these are the, the documents which you can you can, Allege in your complaint that gives your client uh, the legal right to assert that a um, um, that there's been fraud or abuse because of the side payments. I didn't put in this. I didn't put in the in this um, slideshow uh, the fact that there's also and I I I should have. I I think I'll do that to fix it up. But there's a there is. Uh, a a provision in part C of the tenancy addendum, uh, I mean, part C of the HAP contract, there is a specific provision in that addendum that states that, or else it's in part, it could be in part B now, I don't remember, maybe Chris, you do, but either in part B or part C, there's a specific provision that that provides that by signing this HAP contract, the um, uh, the landlord agrees that ev- that every uh, payment made to the landlord is a certification constitutes a certification by the landlord that the money it's the landlord is receiving uh, complies with program requirements. And that, that part
1: of me, I think that is part C.
0: Okay, part C. So that's so that's a critical a part of the. Um, of the uh, analysis as well, that if you remember from back at the beginning of the slideshow, it talks about the, the fraudulent certifications to the government. So every time, so when the when the um, when the housing authority sends out its monthly payments to the landlord, and the landlord um, receives those monthly payments and doesn't return them. And if it can be shown that those monthly payments are um, um, are uh, being received, and the government and the landlord is still taking extra money from the land- from the tenant, then that is a then that's a fraudulent certification that the landlord is um, that the landlord is complying with these program requirements, and that provision actually should also be. Uh, alleged in the, um, in your lawsuit as well. Um, So any, I'm gonna go on and discuss some of these cases that have been um, uh, published uh, over the last several years, but are there any, nobody has any questions about?
1: There's one question. Um, Someone asked if filing a UDAP claim in the eviction proceedings and asking for treble damages Affects the rate right to
0: the action. Yeah, very good question. I'll I'll, I'll answer it. Um, uh, I'll answer it later because I have a little. Because I have uh, for half an hour to go, and I want to uh, uh, do it in the context of the of the um, of the case where this issue comes up, which happened to be my case, um, and one of my cases. Um, so. Well, I promise we'll get to it. Okay, so I have created a list of every of what I think is every single case that has been um, that there has been some sort of a published opinion on, even even if they're not, you know, published. Some of these are unreported cases, but every one has been published. um, On you can find them in the Lexis or Westlaw search. Uh, Sit. What happened is that um, in the next slide, I think it's um, in the very first case that in that some genius from legal services uh, raised this issue of an illegal side payment constituting a false claim was in 1993 from Michigan. And that's the you'll that's the very last case I have cited on this list, Um, but that's where it started. A a legal services lawyer was creative and um, and daring enough to to file a lawsuit for exactly this type of a case, and the the court in Michigan um, determined as uh, as precedent. It's national precedent that yes this um this this type of behavior on the part of a landlord does constitute um a false claim that's um that's punishable and uh and um by the false claims act um, and that's covered by the false claims act so since then um there have and when i um when i litigated my two cases I, there were uh, that was in twenty uh, fifteen and twenty fourteen was when those were settled. Uh, none of these cases on this slide had been um, had been published. Um, one thing you can see uh, is that um, uh, most of these cases don't make it to the circuit court. This one case, which I'll mention in a couple of minutes, did in a um, in a underlying issue actually but um uh, but what happens is that most of these cases either except for the nevada cases which you were very brave because but most of these cases are um involved defending motions for dismissal uh under the, the motion to dismiss rule of 12b6 in federal court but um but what happens is that when pretty uniformly the courts, if the the pleading is is sufficient by you, uh, most of these courts based upon that 1993 case and then the subsequent cases have denied the motions to dismiss. And when, or at least in some major role part, they deny them, but when they do deny them, that's when the landlords are very much incentivized to settle the cases. So that's why there's not a lot of appellate law, but there are these fortunately um, district court cases that have had issued opinions which help bolster all the succeeding cases to, uh, to support this idea that section eight side payment issues are clearly actionable under the False Claims Act and, whoops, and now there's a whole bunch more cases than there were when I last did this kind of lawsuit, which I'm really happy about because we have a new case in our office. And Chris, I'm gonna ask us <laughs> to co-counsel. Um, but um, anyway, so actually the most recent, this most I've just put the data in, in this case because this is just hot off the press. This was a, you know, a month ago, uh, well, two months ago almost now, but less than two months ago. Um, Um, And this is the most recent case that I found published um, and uh, that involves section eight. And that case um, was actually a a more of a, this case, this Jenkins case is more of a kind of a unique case as far as I can tell, but it's also very creative and it could give us more ammunition for trying to uh, litigate this type of a case because I, this is really a different type of case than just the illegal side than, than a, an illegal side payment case this case was brought for against a landlord who had failed repeated this is more than one tenant but um on this where the the um the landlord had failed uh, an H, housing quality standards inspection Hqs inspection that as hopefully we all know is required to uh, landlords are required to comply with the housing quality standards that are expressed in the federal regulations for the condition of the property. And uh, if not, then they're not going to be entitled to receive the housing sub payment, the HAP housing assistance payments from the housing authority. And, uh, but in this case, the landlord, the inspection occurred and the landlord failed and the allegations of the complaint were that the um the landlord after the failure made only s- decorative superficial repairs to the property uh not to because it didn't want to spend the money to actually rectify the uh problems of the uh, that caused the failure of inspection but only to uh do sufficient um uh, Beautifi- beautifying, I suppose, of the, of the property in order to somehow get the, con- convince the housing authority that the, um, ins- that the uh, place should pass inspection. And, uh, and the allegations in this lawsuit were not that they actually, that the landlord actually um, received the money. Um, although, of course, um uh, I guess the land, as you know the, the landlords are given enough uh sometime three months sometimes a month maybe longer to be able to make proper repairs in order to pass inspection but this this particular landlord was re-inspected and again failed and uh i guess the housing the, the housing authority inspectors were not bribed like sometimes i know they are or, you know corrupted whatever but regardless they did fail again so this wasn't a case where um, the landlord actually had ever received uh, the funds after being told that they better make the repairs, and then they didn't properly make the repairs. But even so, the the um, the court uh, um, the court uh, denied a motion to dismiss this case based upon um, the. Uh, certification of the landlord that they understood that this was the, uh, this was the requirement of participation in the program was to keep the place maintained in compliance with the housing quality standards. And the landlord had deliberately failed to do that and expected to continue and did con- um, continue to receive those housing assistance payments, uh, while, um, while expressing, saying, come come back, housing, you know, the, the landlord has to call the, contact the housing authority, said, I made the repairs, please come and reinspect.'" And so this is a pretty unique, this is a unique uh, case, as, um, as far as I know, at least published in our research um, programs. But it's new and uh, and we'll see what happens with this. But it, but we all are we all have experience, I'm sure those of us who've had experience with Section 8 cases where the landlords where our tenants tell us that the landlords didn't really make the repair, like the leaking ceiling, and all the landlord does is put a new um, false ceiling up, but doesn't really fix the ceiling, fix the roof or what something like that. So, but that this is pretty unique. All the other cases really do involve um, Uh, mostly some sort of payments which are not, um, which were not provided for, not permitted by the HAP contract. Um, uh, So this, uh, the next case, Ellis, uh, it was actually a, um, there was a summary judgment. um, I think this was a Nevada case. Yeah. Yeah. I maybe do you know anything more about this but this is this was a new issue too
1: work on this one as much um, i just remember that the landlord was pro se which is why it went up to the ninth circuit okay. she went to the ninth circuit so she just didn't want to accept the law and that's why she kept
0: appealing landlord yeah yeah this was pro se and the judge granted summary judgment on behalf of the plaintiff this was a, a the landlord admitted to having Demanded and received, um,
1: thought it was okay.
0: <laughs> thought it was okay, and uh, and so summary judgment was granted to the plaintiff for hundreds of like more than a hundred thousand dollars of damages, and uh, and my she the defendant appealed to the circuit and the circuit court said actually wrote an opinion, not just summary not just summarily affirming, but uh, explaining why uh, the landlord was wrong and kept, maintained those damages, uh, that that award against the landlord. Um, Carmichael, uh, there's two cases there and down here, um, the same case, uh, because this case, this is something which is interesting about um, um, federal law, which I encountered in the cases I had done is that, um, in This case, the landlord. The landlord in this case, it was a, a failure to pay a, a, a standard um, extra side payment issue. Um, the um, and the default judgment was entered for a ton of money, also. And we'll I'm going to explain a little bit about the what damages you can get, um, but a ton of money, and it was a default judgment a year later landlord comes back to court to uh, ask to vacate that default judgment. Now it's in it's unlike state law. The opportunity for a defendant to try to vacate a def- default judgment is much broader. It's more lax and actually that happened in my case with one of my cases. The landlord had neglected to respond to um, my uh, the lawsuit, and I, you know, and so eventually I gave, have to give certain notice that you're going to get a default judgment. The landlord in, in neglected to do what it was required to do by that notice, and I then obtained a default judgment in, in my case. But the landlord then got a lawyer and um, acted pretty promptly after that, and even though it would never have flown in state court. The default judgment in one of my cases was then opened, and we had to then proceed with the litigation. Um, so that's just something to be aware of. It's not over when you think it might be over, um, always. But in this case, it was. It was the court did not um, did not grant uh, the motion to vacate the uh, default judgment. Uh, Jensen, this so this was this is also one of your cases, Chris, where. Um, uh, this, there was a, 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 an opinion issued in a, in a case where the um, court the federal court was actually ruling on the motion for um, uh, to grant IFP status because under federal rules we don't get the, there's not the same automatic if you get represented by legal services rule, although that helps but it, um, it, um, um, the, the judge has a duty, to um to evaluate at least the prima facie merits of the case so in this case the judge did grant IFP status but I it's 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 a helpful case because it's 2019 and it um and it does a somewhat of a decent review of these other case the precedent these other cases upon which uh, the court relied to say yes it seems clear by the complaint that uh, that there's a meritorious claim um, Cause of action here, uh, Kelly. This is 2018. Um, so this involved um, two allegations of fraud, one being the extra side payments, um, but also in this case in in California there, and it may be in some of your area um, counties as well. The um, the uh, uh, there was a rule in California, a law in California that requires that an occupancy permit be um, obtained, uh, which, have, would, which involve showing that the place was habitable also, uh, and that, you know, the number of people that are being rented to doesn't exceed the number of bedrooms or whatever it is, whatever those rules were for occupancy permits, um, uh, 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 every renter, every owner in in California has to obtain an occupancy permit. And um, because the HAP contract requires also that a landlord certify as part of its, um, uh, the requirements for being part of the Section 8 program, they have to certify that all federal and state laws have been complied with for the rental of the property. And in this case, the landlord signed that and it was, Found out that there was no um, that the landlord had never obtained an occupancy permit. So, uh, so not only was there the additional uh, side payment, but also the the lo- the fraud concerning the occupancy permit. And the court held that both of those um, both of those uh, um, f- uh, f- uh, um, lies, I suppose, um, were. Um, were actionable under the Fair False Claims Act, um, so that's something to look at as well. And also, that's an interesting, in light of the fact that uh, there was some discussion recently um, on the list serve on our plan list serve about does the um, does the failure of a landlord in general to get a uh, an occupancy permit that's required uh, constitute an affirmative defense against the tenant being evicted and um, the law's not great on that. Um, although uh, um, I see, I, I forget who it was that um, maybe the person who's on the listserv, uh, who did the case on the listserv is on here. But uh, she um, she was able to she successfully defended for claim damages as a result of not um, the tenant had already vacated in that case. But it's an, an it's a hard. I think it's a difficult issue, challenging issue in state court, but it can be used uh, to claim a False Claims Act uh, liability if the if you have Section Eight tenant facing that issue. Uh, so let's see what what other cases I've um, I've taken I've highlighted here, the Johnson case. So in this case, um, the um, the, uh, again, this was discussed in at the IFP stage, and um, the uh, um, maybe this is the case that I was thinking it was the IFP st- stage. But this was where the claimed side illegal side payment was uh, the sewage and trash fees because the HAP contract, uh, and, and I think it's page one of the HAP contract of Part A, really specifies what what utilities um, are, uh, is the landlord going to be responsible for? And sometimes those con- contradict the, often they contradict what the lease says. So but, so what what is what is dispositive is what is in the HAP contract for purposes of outside payment uh, argument. And in this particular case, this, the HAP contract provided that the landlord has to pay for the water and uh, for the sewage and trash fees. And, and the landlord was charging the tenant and, um, And the court said, that's illegal and and that's actionable.
1: Um, Almost all of our cases, um, the extra payments were never called rent. They were HOA fees, pool maintenance fees, um, sewer and trash, a lot of sewer and trash or other utilities, um, which sometimes of course, like they were charging way more than the utilities because they really were rent, but they almost never called it rent. Um, I think I had one, one or two cases where the landlord actually signed a deal with the um, tenant, saying, um, "By the way, you're going to pay this extra rent money because you know the housing authority won't get my full amount." And they actually put that in writing and signed it, which was helpful. And, and <laughs> they probably rent. But other than that, it almost always was, was something that sort of um, landscaping fees, HOA fees, pool fees, uh, sewer and sewer and water.
0: Yeah, and no, I think I flagged those cases. This this one. Uh, from California, this Terry case was in allegations that uh, charging for a washing machine and dryer fee and renter's insurance and covered parking fees. So that that case, it was not um, the, the the court held because actually that what they analyzed here in this case what constitutes rent for purposes of violating uh, the certification, the housing authority certification. And the court here held that washing machine and dryer was definitely considered to be rent fees for those things because it was mandatory. Um, I believe they also said that for renter's insurance, that the landlord had um, was mandating that the person uh, obtain renter's insurance, and uh, um, and so because that wasn't in the HAP contract or that therefore it was an illegal side payment to require that even though the money, I guess the money was actually going to the insurance company in that case, I'm not sure. Um, They did hold though that the parking fees, they were going to remand, they remanded to determine whether that was a mandatory fee because that was how they analyzed whether it was an illegal side payment or actionable under the False Claims Act was whether it was um, uh, a mandatory fee that the landlord was asking for in violation or contrary to the terms of the HAP contract. Um, so this this case, Doe and Gormley, that case involved a um, uh, not not a standard Section Eight tenant, but a somebody under uh, the HAPWOT uh, program. The housing opportunities for people with AIDS program, which is also a a subsection of section eight. So it's not just standard section eight tenants that are entitled to these uh, laws to proceed with the lawsuits. And um, homes is the case that uh, Chris referenced where this was, um, there were homeowners association fees and um, also management fees that were being um, complained of as illegal side payments, and the court held yes, those are deemed to be illegal side payments.
1: And yeah. that was too, because she didn't actually pay the HOA fees for most oh. of the, the claims as violations. Um, but because they tried to evict her on it, they, you know, the court didn't give us a problem about saying that that actually was still another fraudulent act, even though she never actually paid it. So it cut down her direct damages, but they still held that each month was a, a fraudulent act.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, so, this, so I'll, I'll just go for for a few more because I, I don't have too much more time. But the Mathis one, I thought this is also your case. You are the your office is the queen is the king of, of yeah. these cases, really.
1: Case, yes, so, told to them when we discovery the caseworker told them it was okay.
0: Oh, okay. But another hand, but on the other hand, the court held that uh, even a a pool, a, a, a payment for being able to use the swimming pool in the complex would be considered a, um, a, a violation if it's not in the uh, contract, in the lease or the half payment. So I guess the court eventually said, well, there was just a viable reliance on the housing authority, but.
1: We, we didn't get it, we settled before the court because uh, it was pretty clear that it was not going to go well, so.
0: Oh, okay, but still, I, I just even a pool payment. So uh, I
1: mean, they had to pay it, or they would get evicted. So it was still a signed payment,
0: right? So that was a kind of a fun case, I think, except when you realized <laughs> it wasn't going to go well.
1: That wasn't so fun.
0: So, um, uh, so these these two cases are mine: Salvador and Fleming and, and uh, Richards, and Salvador. This was the case where now I will answer that one question that somebody posed. So the the case came up um, first, of course, as as is often the case, as an eviction case. And uh, so my client had proof. She really had lots of proof that was blatant that she had been paying these side payments and didn't realize it um, that it was improper um, for, for a few years. And uh, so I um, so in the eviction case itself, I filed a an unfair trade practices uh, claim, which actually is under the uh, FCEUA, the Fair Credit Extension Uniformity Act of, which is uh, the law which deals with demanding more uh, money money that the that, uh, that the consumer isn't entitled to. Um, but that is de- violations of the FCEUA is cons- are considered to be violations of the Unfair Trade Practices Act, which thereby gives tenants, uh, consumers, the right to sue individual uh, in private actions. Uh, the FCEUA doesn't do that specifically, but it says you have the right to do that as an unfair trade practice. So, yeah, it was a counterclaim under both based relying on both those statutes. So we, I, I was definitely aware of the False Claims Act and I was intending to file that action in, we finally settled this case, actually, uh, um, and in the settlement, um, I forget if my client got any money uh, under the false, under the UCC claim, but she didn't have to pay any money, and she had moved out by then, um, so I didn't have to worry about eviction, and but I was aware that I wanted to make the claim for under this law. So I expressly put in our settlement agreement that this does not waive any rights that the tenant may have to other remedies down the road or something like that. And I was very grateful I did do that because um, in this lawsuit in the federal court, um, one of the, the the grounds for motion to dismiss by the landlord was that uh, I had waived my, that there was claim preclusion um, because I had not asserted, because even though I had filed a counterclaim um, in the uh, state court, I didn't assert a violation of the False Claims Act in the state court. But as I briefed and as the court held, that's not a valid argument to make. For many reasons, but one, in, in, including the fact that the False Claims Act, it's your your client is not really the plaintiff; it's the government that's the plaintiff, and so there can there was not issue preclusion because it's really the government's action, not my client's action, and therefore there was no claim um, preclusion. Um, and there were case. There's some case law on this, which um, actually this was. You know every lawyer's uh, dream where the other side relies on a case for the opposite proposition and all I, I did was find a case that expressly overruled the case that they were relying on so that was fun um, but anyway there's this so I, I think my last the next slide I, I, I hope i did this but if not i'm going to talk just very briefly about yes i did about the leverage and why however i learned from this case in my settlement negotiations that um, it probably makes more sense not to assert an unfair trade practices claim in the state court proceedings, even if you even if you want to argue that the defendant shouldn't owe any money. There's no compulsory counterclaim law in Pennsylvania, and my advice to anybody would be: instead, if you're going to be doing a false claims act case, raise this. Type of a, an unfair trade practice as a supplemental jurisdiction um, claim in the federal case, and I'll explain why in a couple minutes. Um, so this uh, um, this Richards case, I also there's also an opinion on this case where I was uh, you know defending a motion to dismiss, and um, and the court there expressed something which uh, addressed something which. I, I had to address because the plaintiff addressed it, but I don't think it's really terribly insignificant. That won't affect us. But there are two different types of um, certifications that a landlord can be accused of and actionable under this law. One, and it's been a common law um, evolution of what these are. One is an implicit an implied false certification and one is an express false certification. Um, But in any event, in this particular case, the judge wrote that actually this type of a case involves both. So it doesn't really matter whether it's a false express or implied false certification. But if that comes up, you can take a look at that case and it will help you. Um, Let's see. And uh, the Sutton case, this is one of the newer cases also, uh, the older, one of the original cases um, where in this case, it was the extra payments for, for landscape maintenance. And again, it was a necessary condition of the lease, but not the HAP contract. And so um, so the court held that that was a violation and actionable under the False Claims Act. Um, so these are the cases. You can use this as a handy dandy through sub- October of 2020 uh, horn book for you all. Um So some final thoughts, Uh, this thing about leverage, um, as I explained, is that this this consideration of leverage, here's the problem is that in order for your client to get 30%, 30%, if the US attorney is willing to give your client up to 30% of whatever damages they are able to recover, First of all, the U.S. attorney is not going to demand so much in settlement that they're going to bankrupt the, the, the landlord um, grant, um, except if there's a default judgment, I would say, or, or except if they discovered, which has not happened in my cases, that the landlord is a is a repeat offender for other tenants as well, or a large landlord. In those cases, may be different. They weren't mine. Um, so the landlord the U.S. attorney in, in settlement was there was no way they were going to demand all of the money that they otherwise would be entitled to had we litigated the case, um, which also then then meant that our share of that money, 30 percent of it, or twenty between 25 to 30 percent discretionary with the court and the, and the U.S. attorney, was also going to be much lower than I And my client would have otherwise wanted. And so, uh, and we didn't get huge um, damages like you did, Chris, which uh, now you're inspiring me to be a little bit more aggressive, but a lot more aggressive. But but what the US Attorney suggested, and so what um, I did instead is, I mean, that's why I think if you put in, what happens is if you put in an unfair trade practices claim, which also allows for attorney's fees, in and trouble damages in your, um, in your federal case, then what the US attorney was much more willing to do was say, okay, we're going to settle the case as damages under the unfair trade practices, thereby giving the private litigant a lot more money than they would have had they gotten the same amount of money under the Fair Claims Act, or we would have only gotten 30% of the, the recovery. And that led to being able to settle the case um, that gave my client and me not as much money as Chris got, but at least uh, more money than I'd ever gotten in the case. And it, my my attorney's fees.
1: Yeah, we didn't get the clients that. That was just our total for the the judgment.
0: No, I know, no, but still. <laughs> and um made my director pretty happy that year too. So I um um so that's why there's a good reason to, to be able to have that leverage, to be able to get more money for your client in, in a settlement than, um, than just simply relying on a false claims case where the U.S. in settlement, the U.S. attorney would have to take 70% or between 75 and 70%. And um, also the U.S. attorney still has, they get to decide, if, uh, they get to approve a settlement. So they do have leverage over you and, your, and what you would want. And I was, you have to be concerned that if the U.S. attorney is not willing to go for the big bucks, that you either, you better, you better try to accommodate with the U.S. attorney because they have the final say. They had to get permission from the Department of Justice um, to, uh, you know, the biggies in Washington. So to settle. And there are a couple other um, state common law Claims you can make, um, unjust enrichment, which was one that uh, I think I said at the bottom of the other page. This is this is this is not reported this case, but this is the one of the original cases, and this was taken on by the Florida U.S. Attorney, and um, and they were and they got some and the money. There was an unjust enrichment claim in that case, and you could plead that. I don't know if you've pleaded that in your cases, Chris, but and also common law fraud. And here, oops, oops, sorry, Uh, recapping what the different side payments can be. Now there's under federal, most of the circuits have argued that a separate rule of procedure, rule 9B, that you have to plead fraud or mistake with particularity um, um, is required in these cases because you're essentially pleading fraud. But circuits are split, and uh, although most of them say, yes, you have to. The Third Circuit has not um, it not ruled expressly on this issue. Um, the First Circuit says you don't need to prove it with particularity. But given the other newer Supreme Court cases, like Iqbal is the big one, that requires particularity in pleading, it's not terribly difficult to meet the standard. And most of the in all, all these cases, the standard was met that you have to plead specifically what happened. Um, you, and it's pretty easy to do because you have the documents to show what the landlord is able to, to to charge. And then you know what your client, assuming your client has receipts, that's the big issue, I guess, is what, what your client has for receipts. Um, and uh, so anyway, and actually there's one, oh, here, I'll get to that at the end. So there's this issue. Oh, computation of damages. That's still not quite uniform. How do you, not for the penalties, but for the actual damages, are the damages going to be deemed, um, uh, are they going to be deemed um, the, let's say your client is paying a hundred dollars a month extra and the HAP payment is $500 a month. Are the damages going to be that hundred dollars a month or are they going to be the $500 a month because that's the amount of money that the the landlord should not have received had they been, but they were receiving. They shouldn't have received anything because they were lying this whole time. So therefore, several courts have held that therefore the full amount of the half payment is is what would be considered to be the actual damage for, for in that case. But all of the courts, so that's that's still a matter of debate between courts, and you know, but all of the courts agree that every every for each month in which a wrongful payment was made by the tenant, that constitutes a distinct violation of the False Claims Act, and that means that that twenty three thousand up to twenty three thousand dollars per penalty per violation as a penalty, would be applicable to each month that the um, that the uh, That the lamp that the tenant made an extra payment that they shouldn't have had to pay. That's an incredibly huge amount of money. Um, So that's why this is like uh, shocking to us who deal with, you know, hundreds of dollars usually, or thousands, maybe a few thousand, but not hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. one other thing I learned um, just by accident, but it's it's interesting that I um, <clears throat> that I was I. This is just a thought too that in, in under Pennsylvania under federal law, if you're um, if you file a complaint that's the pleading is deficient and you haven't pleaded enough facts, uh, and the other side files a motion to dismiss. Then you're entitled to one free amended complaint. You don't have to get approval by the judge. You don't have to make an argument about why you should be entitled to amend. And I just found that to be um, very helpful. Um, you know, maybe I, so what I, I've done in the sex subsequent, I, knowing that I, um, um, I didn't plead quite as much as I probably should have on purpose because I wanted one to see what the motion to dismiss would be. I knew that the the other side is going to always file a motion to dismiss. And I wanted to see what the bases were for the motion to dismiss, because I knew I would be able to plead because I had fixed the first case I had done with a really good factual outline. And I figured I could easily do that again on my free chance to do that. so that would those are those are all these considerations, and I'll I think I'll send to Kelly a um, one of my ple one of my complaints so you can see one of the p- corrected complaints so you can see and you know plagiarize if you'd like.
1: So- this is Kelly. I'm going to go ahead and launch the second CLE poll box. Um, Eileen, if you do want to go ahead and send me the other uh, material. That you'd like people to have, I'll then put it on the Sketch app under the session, so that people can go oh, okay. in and take a look at it and download it.
0: Oh, great! I won't be able to do that till a little bit later, but I'll do it this afternoon,
1: Kelly. We did have a couple of questions, Eileen. I don't know if you want to weigh in. Um, the first one asked if there is um, any consideration of tenant culpability in making the oh, side to the
0: Yeah. Thank you.
1: I um I actually um
0: that's something else I'll add. Uh, my new and improved slideshow um yes uh this, the on that list the Stearns versus lane case from vermont 2010 in that case there was enough evidence according to the judge that the uh landlord and the tenant had conspired together to mm-hmm. because the, the client knew but and that, that the client knew that there was um that it was improper for her to have agreed to um, the side payment, but she did it, and you'd feel bad because she was desperate. Yeah. But desperate wasn't enough for the judge when she had admitted that she knew um, of the um, that it was illegal. Also, as much as the landlord, in fact, actually, I would say this in this that particular case, Stearns versus Lane, the, land, the tenant was cajoling the landlord to do this because she really wanted this place. And so the judge found that it was a technical violation of the um, of the False Claims Act, but refused to grant any damages at all to that particular tenant. Um, my my th- so in both my cases and maybe Chris and yours too, I, I was care I was I needed to be careful to know what why how did it happen that the clients my clients had had gotten themselves in this and. And both of them were very believable to me, at least, that they um, really didn't know that the um, what the that that this was improper. Even though they also probably could have known, because you go through that t- training as a you know housing authority pe- tenant. But but they I I thought they were both credible and believable. Well, and um that and sympathetic enough that and and, and so I, I I do caution you on that. I I. To my experience, so in neither of these cases have, and I've never seen, I don't know, but I haven't seen anything in writing that shows that the housing authority is willing to um, uh, terminate a tenant, but for engaging in fraud, but you haven't either. So um, yeah. it,
1: the only time it was really an issue for us that it was litigated um, was the Benitez case. But I don't think it made it into the decision but they, they tried to argue, they spent a lot of time and money trying to argue that she knew and doing depositions. Um, mm-hmm. and our response is basically she's not the plaintiff. The government's the plaintiff. You know, it, there's no unclean hands here because she's the one bringing the lawsuits, the government, you know. Right. bring your own FDA claim against I, her. I like
0: that. That's good. Yeah, and
1: that never I don't I don't think it shows up in the decision, but they, they tried to make a big deal out of it, and we sort of, you know, did a legal version of a shrug.
0: The other thing, conversely, I um one of these cases of mine, I um, almost as soon as I filed the case, or maybe after I won the motion to dismiss, but very quickly, the landlord wanted to settle the case. And um, he was pretty, he was pretty remorseful. He, you know, he admitted it. And he, (laughs) and he had other Section 8 property. And he was concerned about the, there was some term, which I don't remember now, um, that he used about that he didn't want to be placed on a list by the Department of Justice, which would have prevented him from re- being able to continue to be a Section 8 landlord. And there is a term, I, one of these days, I'll remember that term. But in any event, I, um, the government wanted to uh, settle the case by agreeing not to put him on this particular list. And I actually, they asked me what I thought, and I basically, I agree because Honestly, this—if this guy was remorseful and he learned a lesson, he did have to pay, you know, a, lot, a decent amount of money. And um, and and I didn't want to um, prevent the limited number. I didn't want to add to the limited number of to the huge number of tenants who refused to give Section Eight to our clients. So that that sort of came up in this case, in one of my cases, right?
1: Other question we had. And I'll see if you have a different opinion than me on this, is um whether side payments, if side payments have included washing drying machines, does that include coin on machines? And I That's, would say no, because oh. you can choose to use those or not. And it's not mentioned in the HAP contract. Although on the other hand, the housing authority does set the rent based on the amenities. So
0: I think I think I would agree it would be very difficult to to prove to convince a judge that it would be considered a an illegal payment, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay,
1: anything else? I would just, if I, if you don't mind if I jump in, I, I'd say, um, you know, I wanna echo Eileen that to the extent federal litigation is easy and fun, these are easy and fun cases. When my office started this, we were not experienced federal litigators. We had really not done much at all. We were all young, we did not know what we were doing. Um, and Dick Tenenbaum in Connecticut was very generous with his time and pleadings when we called him up and said, you know, we don't know what we're doing, but we'd like to sue some people. Um, so it just, it, it's, they're not resource intensive cases. They're usually not evidentiary issues. Everyone pretty much agrees the extra payments happened. Um, all of our cases either were settled at summary judgment or were settled after a motion to dismiss. There, there weren't trials. There wasn't, except for Benitas, there was not extensive discovery and that was all the other side. I guess they just... Enjoyed lighting piles of money on fire. I'm not sure, yeah. um, but but the one thing is, you probably again. Um, I think I mentioned that you're going to have to uh, educate the U.S. attorney, but you're going to have to educate the judge and the other lawyers as well, probably, because um, maybe your judges here in Pennsylvania are better, but our judges in Nevada they did not know anything about subsidized housing at all. Mm-hmm. So you need know, you to sort of start from the very beginning of this is what a section eight program is and this is how it works um, and really sort of explained that um, and especially explaining the money stuff because there was some real resistance to sort of um, the idea of okay your client got charged an extra hundred dollars a month and i'm just to like award ten thousand dollars a month for that hundred dollar violation um, and they, they that seemed sort of unfair to them And so we really had to sort of very carefully lay out, this is why it's allowed and you don't have a choice and it's not unfair. They're actually ripping off the government um, to make them comfortable with that. And then also, you know, make the U.S. attorney comfortable with the settlements we were asking for. Um, So that, you know, other attorneys too, like there's no attorneys who do these cases aside from legal aid attorneys. So we get some, you know, guy with a Maybe a landlord tenant practice if we were lucky, like a solar practitioner who had no idea about any of this, um, and sort of again, there'd be this sort of hostility. You're never going to get hundred thousand dollars for what's a, you know, eight hundred dollars in damages total. Um, and so the better we laid it out, the more likely they were to settle. And then of course once we got a few cases uh, on the um, docket, th- that made everything a lot easier. We could file and get a settlement because they could look up this case law and see that we were already we were already winning.
0: Yeah. So we need more case law in Pennsylvania, although those are excellent uh, considerations to think about. But yeah, so at least we need more case law in Pennsylvania so we can start getting um, these these uh, settlements or, or outcomes. And uh, so help us all by filing them. And in, in consideration, we'll help you with litigating
1: them. Um, OK. So Thank you so much, Eileen and Chris, um, for your time and for all this great information. It's very helpful. Thanks to everyone who joined us and everybody have a great day. Um, Take care. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Bye.